All right. Good to see you guys. If you could grab a Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 21. Uh, We're going to look at Luke chapter 21 together today. And uh, in Luke chapter 21, we're coming to the very end of Luke. Um, All that awaits Jesus on the other side of our passage tonight is the cross. Um, It's the final week of his life before he dies. And uh, he, we just saw the last chapter, we had two sermons in there where um, he's been teaching in the temple um, to different people. And we're learning here in chapter 21, verse 37, that essentially the rhythm of the week has been him teaching in the temple and then at night taking his disciples and himself up Mount Olivet and doing some camping. So I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus liked camping. So he's camping on top of Mount Olivet at night. And if I could show you the view of Mount Olivet, you would see why he's doing this. It's a beautiful view. And from the view of Mount Olivet, you can look out and you could see the temple in all of its beauty. Even as it's being rebuilt, you can see the beauty of the temple. And what's interesting is as Jesus has done this, uh, there's one day that we learn about in verse 5 where the disciples are talking about how beautiful the temple is and its stones and all these different things. We're talking about the glory of the temple, the magnificence of it. And you can almost imagine they're up on Mount Olivet and they're looking out and looking at the temple and, and Jesus begins to point out different vistas than what they're seeing. As they're looking on the mountain, they could see these different beautiful vistas, the vista of the temple, the vista of the scenery around them. But Jesus gives them these mental image vistas of what awaits them in the near future, in the far future, in this final vista of how they're supposed to live in the present. And it's actually really striking because they're looking at all this beautiful stuff and the words of Jesus point them to a lot of uh, difficult things. Uh, things that you would not look at in this world and say, that is beautiful. Even though they're looking at beautiful things, he says, I want to give you a vista in your mind of difficult things. And what he's showing them in the first um, vista is that he wants them and he wants us to expect difficulty in this world, whether it's difficulty from following him or difficulty from being a part of this broken world. Uh, The second vista that we see him point out is that his disciples should expect redemption. They should expect redemption. And then lastly, we see that Jesus has expectations for us. And his expectations for us is that we would live with holy optimism in the face of difficulty. And if we're just being quite, I don't know, honest and humble tonight, I think there's a lot of points in our lives where we need to be honest and just say, yeah, we have not faced difficulty being influenced by the words of Jesus. And there's probably been a lot of things in the last few months or the last couple of years where tonight hopefully encourages us and maybe confronts us to see how we as his followers don't often live much different than the world in the face of difficulty. But he wants us to live with a holy optimism. And so that's what I hope we see here today. So let's look first at the the difficulty that we should expect as we follow Jesus in this world. Let's look in verse five 
Um, we, we see this initial scene that I've already referenced. As while some, so the disciples, they're speaking of the temple they just saw, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And, and I kind of like this scene because Jesus interrupts here a little bit as a Debbie Downer person. They're like, wow, look at the beautiful temple. And he's basically like, yeah, it's all going to destroy it. You know, it's all going to be destroyed. And you can almost hear the wah, wah, you know, behind that. But that's what happens here. So it raises a question for them. They ask, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, this is the most natural question that we ask as human beings. We obsess over this often, even as Christians, when will this happen? And and we're even told in the Gospel of Mark that the things that Jesus is even referring to in the total of this section, he even says that he doesn't know when it's going to happen. So we like the question, we obsess over it, but Jesus doesn't go off-brand here in his response because what does he say? He doesn't even answer it. He just says, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, which is a fancy word for commotion, Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, which is diseases. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for it will, uh, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. He's referring to everlasting life. By your endurance, you will gain your lives, eternal life. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. To let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what we're meant to see here, even in Jesus' response to their question, is that he's not concerned with answering that question. He's concerned that they are not surprised by the difficulty that awaits them. That, that's what he's driving at. That they're going to face difficulty, and he is encouraging them to stay faithful in the face of that difficulty. So in verse 8, he warns them not to get swept away by people who come when times get rough, right? People come along when times get rough and they say, hey, this is going on. Listen to this. 
come follow me, this is what's happening. He says, don't get swept away by them. Don't get swept away. I'm the Messiah. Don't listen to anybody else who comes and says, I'm the Messiah. Don't listen to anybody who shows up and makes predictions about what's happening and how you really need to follow them. He says, no, keep your eyes fixed on me. Right? When you hear verse 9 of wars, this commotion, don't be terrified, don't panic. In other words, don't be surprised. Expect, expect this. He then talks in verse 10 about the reality of war and conflict in this world, which we're all very aware about right now in Ukraine. In verse 11, he talks about natural disasters, earthquakes, famine. He talks about disease. He caps off verse 11 by simply saying that there will be things that happen in creation that terrify people, that aren't normal to everyday life, but happen enough that it makes people feel nervous. I mean, we just sang so well and beautifully this afternoon together that great line, do you feel the world is broken? And we all in unison sing, we do. That's a great summary of what Jesus is saying here. It's a great summary. He's preparing them for what awaits. He's like a football coach in the locker room, right, with his disciples before they take the field. And he wants them to know about the conditions of the field, right? There's going to be snow. There's going to be a lot of crowd noise. All these circumstances that are going to surround them. He's preparing them for what awaits them on the field. But then he directs their attention to the opponent, just like any good coach would in verse 12. He says, they will lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Because you follow Jesus, this is going to happen to you. But I love this line. He goes, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is not something to be avoided. This is an opportunity, right? To, to bear witness for the worthiness of Jesus and, and what he means to you and what he's done for you. This is your opportunity to go, he's worthy, right? Jesus continues to teach about how they're going to be hated by others and that they shouldn't even be surprised when this hits close to home, right? You see that in verse 16. They're going to be maybe even parents and brothers and relatives turn on them. And then he says, some will even die, He's soberingly realistic about the future. And I love this. I love this about Jesus. He does not lie to us. He does not bait and switch us. He doesn't neglect the things that are difficult and go, no, 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 just, you know, move in here because of this and, and eventually you'll learn, but you're too far in now, right? He doesn't bait and switch us. He prepares us. This is important for everyone who might follow Jesus simply if we're tempted to follow him for some benefits. Maybe we falsely follow him because we think my life is a mess and if I follow Jesus, everything is going to be better now. Or I'm going to follow Jesus because of some ease or applause or approval or difficulty. And this would be true for his disciples that, that they too would have to take into consideration this. Why would I be following Jesus? It can't be for those things. They should be prepared for what might come their way on account of him. So this first vista is landing us, is telling us about this persecution that's going to come. But what's important to see is that in all actuality, what we're looking at here has already happened in history. We talked about this in the book of Daniel. This, what's described here is taking place uh, in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 
That's what this scene is here. There was this great um, Jewish and Roman war where Rome surrounded the city and the temple was torn down. It was destroyed. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's being Debbie Downer there. He's describing this scene, and it's a horrible scene. When you read what's happening here, especially with pregnant women and infants, I mean, it is like a scene you want to weep over. I mean, this is horrible stuff. He's also telling them that uh, they're going to be persecuted, and we know that this is talking specifically about the apostles because we see that they're going to be brought before synagogues, and that's where they're going to be persecuted. And you read about that in the book of Acts, right? We know that because of the location of this, that this is describing how they're going to be persecuted by the Jews just like Jesus was. Right, so all these things have happened, but what I want us to see is that they still instruct us today. It's not that this was promised to them and for us what's promised is ease. No, it, we still expect difficulty. There are still wars there are still famines, there's still earthquakes, there's still persecution. And so as followers of Jesus, we are not to be surprised by difficulty. If we are surprised, that's really on us. That's really on us. Um, I remember when I was six, my mom told me, I'm ironing, don't touch the iron. She left the room and I said, I'm going to touch that. And I touched the iron, and that was a really bad day for me, okay? Just being honest with you, it was a horrible day. Um, and my mom, she's like the sweetest woman in the world, and I don't remember exactly what she said, but I imagine that she had tons of compassion for me. But if I was my mom, I would probably have walked back in the room and said, you're an idiot, right? I prepared you, I told you, right? If you touch this iron that's blazing hot, you're going to burn yourself, you know, I wouldn't look at my mom and go, what in the world, you know? This thing happened and you should have done something about that. No, she, she actually prepared me and in all actuality, and I remember this too, I was not surprised at all when that happened. I mean, maybe you wouldn't touch an iron. You know, maybe you're not an idiot like that. But I imagine you can resonate with me a little bit in the sense that we are often surprised at the difficulty we face in this world. And that maybe that difficulty even comes with following Jesus. Are you surprised even at the brokenness of this world? Not desensitized to it, but when, it, when you see things happening in this world, are you like, again, are you serious? Are we surprised? Do we expect difficulty? Do we expect the brokenness? Jesus says, expect this. And before we get too Debbie Downer here, Jesus isn't advocating for pessimism as our approach to living in this world because he tells us, secondly, to expect redemption. Expect redemption in verse 25. He says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So the great promise that we're looking at here is the promise that Jesus will return. 
We saw this language last fall when we went through the book of Daniel where Jesus is described as the son of man who's going to come again and he's going to come on the clouds. That's the image. It's an image that's a divine image, meaning that he is God coming once again to this world to rule and put everything in this subjection under his feet. But he's also fully man, right? He's the son of man coming on the clouds. It's what we sang about as we started our, our service, right? He is going to bring our redemption to completion at that day. But before this happens, he says there will be signs. Do you see that in verse 25? Well, it's a sign. A sign means you haven't arrived at the thing. It's pointing you to something that's actually going to be taking place, right? It's an indicator. It's a signal of what's ahead. This is saying that there's going to be things in the created order, nations against nations, right? People full of fear, fainting, wondering, What is happening in this world? This is the description of chaos, lots of it. And naturally, humanity looking at the chaos and fainting with that fear. And Jesus is saying, this is a sign. This is a reminder. This should trigger within you this understanding. Jesus is going to come back. I mean, I remember when Elizabeth told me that we were pregnant with our first child in July of 2008. And Tucker um, was born on March 11th, 2009. So this week, we're going to have a teenager in our house. It's crazy. But I'll never forget the afternoon of March 9th when she went into labor. Uh, she wasn't, he wasn't born for like two more days almost. So uh, this was quite the process. But um, man, it was exhausting. I'll be honest with you. It was really tired. It was really hard on me. Um, not going to lie. So, um, and if you think I'm joking, I'm being serious. Okay, so I say, I'll just say, I don't know how Elizabeth did it, right? I have no idea how women do this. Okay, it's crazy. But um, I remember that moment where we started to go into labor. And so you have these contractions. And you're kind of initially like, are these Braxton Hicks? You know, what's happening? And then seven minutes later, there's another one. And then, oh, maybe this is it. Seven minutes later, another one, and so on. And finally, you reach this point where you're like, I think we're, this is happening. I think this is happening. And it was exciting. It was exciting, right? What didn't happen is when those contractions took place, we didn't look at Liz and go, oh, no, what's happening? Are you dying? You know? Oh, my gosh, what's going on here? When that happened, we go, it's It's coming. Right, this child is coming, Lord willing, into this world. We're going to receive the arrival of this person that we've been waiting for. Right? We, we looked at this moment very differently. We didn't look at it confused, fainting with fear, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Right? Because we knew we were expecting this. It was the labor pains were signaling something to us. Right? And that's exactly what is being spoken about here. There's going to be some who are going, what is happening And there's others that go, no, we've been waiting for this. But this is a really important principle that that I want you to see. It should be on the screen for you. These descriptions here are specific enough that when things are happening in creation and when wars are happening and all this chaos, they're specific enough to keep us watching and to go, oh, yes, Jesus is coming back. But they are general enough that we should never give in to the tendency to predict exactly when Jesus will appear. They're not giving you date signatures here. They're not giving you specific events or anything like that. It's just saying that when these things are happening in the world, which have happened since Jesus ascended, they're meant to cause us to go, oh yes, Jesus is going to return. When we see the brokenness, we're not meant to despair, but to remember that the world will be 
redeemed, and we will have the opposite reaction to this than people in the world. It's like if you ever smell fish, there's people who go, I'm going to throw up. And there's other people that go, that sounds amazing, right? But it's the same smell. You can have very different reactions to that thing. Some people get excited, some people not so much. In the same way, this is the basis of our response. Not that we look at the brokenness in the world and we take delight in it. No, we lament and we mourn and we grieve. But these events remind us that redemption is coming. It's coming. I mean, just notice the contrast here in verses 26 and verse 28. People who know Jesus, people who don't know Jesus. People in verse 26 are fainting with fear. What a powerful image, right? Just fainting with so much fear. Right? It says they're foreboding, which is like another fancy Nancy word, right? Which is talking about people who are feeling like something bad is going to happen and they're just chaotically talking about it. But look at those who have put their trust in Jesus. What does it say? Straighten up. Raise your heads. Don't soul can look at your feet. Straighten up. Raise your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. What a contrast. For people who face the same difficulty. In the instance of humanity, they're confused, they're pessimistic, they're fainting, overwhelmed with fear. In the instance of those who have followed Jesus and hope in Jesus, this reminds us he's coming. He's what we've waited for. The word here he uses is redemption, which is a word that means being, you've been released from captivity based upon someone paying a price of your debt. So imagine if you're in prison and someone pays your bail and you're set free from captivity. And so this was accomplished for us at the cross when Jesus paid our debt in full. We've been set free from the captivity to our sin, but there is a day when our redemption will be experienced in fullness where there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more temptation. There'll be no more Satan. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be no more creation groaning. All of creation will be released. This is why Jesus, I think, gives us this beautiful image of the tree. Right? We're, we're moving. These, these sunny days remind us that spring is coming, summer's coming. And that's the image we have here, right? He says when you look at a tree and it begins to flower, you're like, oh man, that means the seasons are changing, right? So for a Christian... Right? When you see these things happening, you're not thinking Jesus is coming back, doom, destruction. You think Jesus is coming back, new life blooming. Right? Back when I used to be on Twitter, I'm not anymore, it's a horrible place. Um, I loved how this um, pastor named Isaac Adams on the East Coast, every single day, no matter what was happening in the world, I don't know the guy personally, I have no idea, but no matter what was happening in his life, he tweeted out the same thing. Christian, you are one day closer to heaven. And I loved that. After day five, I was like, man, how long is he going to keep doing this? But it's crazy how day after day after day, that became more and more profound. As you're doom scrolling social media and here's a guy being like, hey, you're one day closer 
But that's exactly what's being talked about here, right? The headlines of this world come and go and are even designed to create fear and outrage within us. But the headlines of heaven are saying Jesus is winning. He is bringing to completion this redemption that he started and accomplished at the cross. And so here we have ourselves hoping and expecting redemption, and this should shape our living. And the image that we have here, this portrait of a disciple, is a portrait of stillness. It's a portrait of waiting, right? Because you're not moving, you're straightening up, you're lifting your head. I don't know if you've ever had to wait for something that you know is coming and you've, you've been waiting for. Right? You have to do something in the meantime. What do you do? I, I kind of have a bone to pick with you guys. Um, I am in shock at how many people criticize Olive Garden around here, okay? Um, I bring it up and people act like I just said I eat it. I don't, I should be careful here. But, you know, someplace that's not great, you know, horrible fast food something. And so I love Olive Garden. I will shout it from the rooftops. It is amazing, okay? It is incredible. And um, I don't know if you guys are just afraid that you're not going to be cool, but you'll be cool in my eyes if you finally just came clean and said, you know what, it is really good, right? It's amazing. Um, or let's just say you, you finally saw the light and you like Olive Garden. And I were to tell you that you're, you know, something happened and, and your friend called you and said, hey, I just ordered you some Olive Garden. It's going to be at your house in 20 minutes. Tour of Italy, unlimited breadsticks, amazing salad. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is sounding awesome, right? Like you're excited, aren't you? But you have to wait, just 20 minutes, but you have to wait. What are you going to do in that 20 minutes? I tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to go into your pantry and grab a Kraft macaroni and cheese box and start making it on your stove, are you? You're not going to do that. Why? Because you know what you're waiting for, right? And it's promised to you, right? It could maybe fall through, but you know that it's coming, there's a stillness as you're waiting, but there's, there's an activity to our waiting, and that's actually where Jesus ends this whole thing. He gets pretty practical for us here as we think about the redemption drawing near. It, this should shape our living. And what he expects us to do is to live with this holy optimism. I say holy optimism because this is not cheap, fake optimism where someone just walks around with rose-colored glasses and goes, no, no, it's not that bad, or no, it's fine, or oh, it'll work out. But you go, yeah, it is really bad. But Jesus really is that good. Right? There's a holy optimism to our lives. The word holy means set apart. It's unlike anything else. You're going to look different in the world if you live according to the ways Jesus tells us to live because he grounds this hope in reality. And so there's four things, quick things, that Jesus points out that we should do in these final verses. The first one is he tells us to listen Holy, optimistic living is marked by listening, specifically listening to what lasts. Look in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation, which is highly debated who that is, but it's not an easy answer. I would propose to you that it's referring to the people experiencing him coming on the clouds. But truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. So there's a lot of things passing away. Generations, heaven, earth, but my words will not pass away. 
What a line. What a truth. What is the most unchanging thing in this world? It is the voice of Jesus. Things come and go all the time. And we grow in our appreciation for the things that remain, right? I mean, just think about, I mean, GBC, we're going to be celebrating our 15th birthday in a few weeks. That's amazing. And there are some of you who have been a part of GBC from the beginning, but not that many of you. I think of the Martins, the Woods, I might be misspeaking, I think the Woods, the Stumps, right? There's probably others in this room that I'm forgetting, but people have been a part of it from the beginning. And as people come and go, even in church communities, our appreciation grows for those who have remained. I've been a part of churches where someone's been like, I've been a part of the church for 60 years. And I'm like, my jaw's on the floor. I, but then at the same time, as things come and go, as, as things change and our appreciation grows for the things that last, when, when something is sort of the glue that holds us together and that too goes away, that's pretty devastating. I make a think about my, my wife's side of the family and, and her grandmother who passed away a few years ago and how we would all get together as an extended family because of Grandma Hank, right? And then when Grandma Hank passed away, right, we all have to sit around and go, okay, how are we going to get together again? Right? She's like the glue of the family. We all have this, right? There's a friend who's stuck by your side through and through and then no longer do you get to do life with him or whatever it is. Even the things that seem to last, right? The things that we've grown in appreciation for their stability, they end up going away, right? So then how should we live? Well, it's continuing to grow in our appreciation and receptivity and attention and uh, discipline, right? To listen to Jesus and be guided by his words. And and this is what happens, you guys, in a world faced with difficulty. When there's chaos around us, people look for sources of clarity. When things are in upheaval, people go, what makes sense of this? What's happening? And people speak out. And you go, I don't know if that's it. I don't know if that's it. And someone else goes, this is what's happening. You're like, that sounds about right. Right? And so we gravitate towards people, these voices of clarity in our life in the midst of chaos. And if we're not careful, just like he warns the disciples over in verse 8, do not get swept away by other voices. Even voices that are marrying the gospel, marrying your faith with other sources of influence that have other agendas in this world. I don't buy into it. This is why conspiracy theories are so powerful. Because people come along, they go, do you really want to know what's happening? And we go, oh, I've been wondering. God's word will not pass away, but everything else will. Heaven and earth, because there's going to be a new one. So my question for you is, who is informing your reality? Is Jesus' voice clarifying reality for you? Two, feel, don't numb yourself. Verse 34, Jesus says, watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, like a trap. This is a very clear and practical thing Jesus teaches us here. He says, watch yourself. Are you weighed down with dissipation, like reckless spending of your resources? Are you numbing yourself? 
The direct application here is most specifically to alcohol. Are you numbing yourself with alcohol? Are, are you numbing yourself with your phone? Are you numbing yourself with binge watching? Are you numbing yourself with pills? Are you numbing yourself with food? Are you numbing yourself with work? Are you comforting yourself with physical pleasures so that you don't have to feel the difficulty? Are you weighed down with the cares of this life? Isn't this our tendency to feel weighed down so we numb? It was widely reported even that alcohol sales increased 20% from March 2020 to September 2020. There's a reason for that, right? As soon as lockdown hit, we all made our lists of shows we were finally going to binge watch, right? We all admittedly feel too attached to our phones and we're like, yeah, I probably should not be on as much. Or we're like, social media, we're attached to that too much. Or the opioid, opioid epidemic is, you know, we're all aware of that now. Or gluttony is this acceptable sin even in the church. And I'm going to be clear, I'm not immune from any of this myself. I'm, none of these things are, well, some of these things are, but not all of these things are bad in and of themselves, right? When used appropriately. But these words cut clear. Because Jesus is saying, you feel the difficulty, you feel weighed down. Don't numb yourself, feel it. Feel it. And that's what leads to his third one, which is stay awake. Stay awake by praying. Look at verse 35 and 36. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. So he goes to the positive here. Okay, if he's called me to feel, what should I do instead as I'm weighed down? What do I do with my cares? What do I do with my anxieties? If I don't just try and check out, what does he say? Stay awake. What does it mean to stay awake? He tells you, pray that you would have strength to escape all these things that he just talked about. Not escape meaning that you don't have to go through them, but escape in the sense that as you go through them, you don't fall away. Right? That you live with this holy optimism. I mean, the, the week of prayer and fasting was huge. I know for me personally, we just had this a week ago. I know through all of your testimony, just so many of you, just powerful as well. As we experience hunger, experience absence, we want to fill the gap. And we experience that feeling and we go, I normally would just want to satisfy it with a bite. But instead, I am going to press in and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to go, God, I need you more than that bite. I need you more than my daily bread. You are my daily bread. Right? Prayer is that pressing into God. It's, it's when temptation comes, right? Let it drive you to God instead of giving in. There's something happening in our heart when temptation comes and something's put before us where you go, I kind of want to do that. I kind of want to numb myself. I kind of want to do this or whatever it is. And we want to we press into that. But instead, we just redirect that longing and we pray. We go, I'm feeling weighed down. Why is this happening? Go to God. And you'll be amazed that when you do, it's way more satisfying. I mean, I love the psalmist who says, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. If we want to know what he's talking about, we can't be people who just try to numb ourselves. We have to press in and go, Lord, cheer my soul. He's saying, don't doze off, right? Don't give in, stay 
awake for. He says, picture, picture where you're going to stand. We see this in verse 36. He says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. As you face opposition for Jesus, it's easy to see the person standing right in front of you. It's easy to fear them. Right? As you face temptation, it's easy to see that sin presented to you and to take hold of it and participate in it. But in each moment, we live with holy optimism. We do that as we see through that person or through that thing, and we remember, we picture that one day we will stand before Jesus and we will see him face to face, just like you see my face right now. We see through the thing to that moment when we will stand. This is a call to live in the fear of God, not the fear of our circumstances, not a call to live in the fear of other people. And I know we misunderstand the fear of God. We think when we're called to fear God, we're called to be terrified of him. And that's not what it means. To fear God, the clearest way I could say that, is to reverence God, to have a reverence for God that's demonstrated in obedience. That's what the fear of God is. And that's what's happening every time we fear something. If I fear the crowd, if I fear fitting in here or whatever it is, I'm going to obey whatever it is that they're saying I need to do. The same is true with God. We reverence him, we fear him, and we demonstrate that fear in obedience. This is what's happening as we picture ourselves standing before the throne, you guys. We can only live with this holy optimism when we picture ourselves standing there one day knowing that Jesus has already redeemed us. I mean, this is a scary, unwanted picture, though, for those who don't have that kind of assurance that they've trusted in Jesus and he has forgiven them of their sin. But if you have, this is so clarifying, and it generates that holy optimism And so I I don't know where you are today. Maybe you've run away from God for years or maybe you've, you've run away from God your whole life and you're living in a season where you're just fainting with that fear about what's happening in this world. And maybe you find yourself even tonight going, I I don't even know why, but I, I believe what Jesus is saying. Don't close off your heart to him. Open yourself up to him. I don't buy into the easy lie even that someone might say to you or you hear in your head that says, oh, if you go to Jesus, he'll just cast you out, right? He'll reject you. You're not good enough for him. No, Jesus promises that if you come to him in faith, he will never cast you out. He will never let go of you, no matter how faithful you feel like you're being to him. So if that's you and you're here tonight, I, I want to welcome you. Just come and grab me afterwards and I'd love to talk to you about that or talk to the person that you came with. They'd love to talk to you about that. But this is the fourfold way that Jesus is calling us to live in these verses. And I'll be honest with you guys, I can't imagine what was going through as we look at the difficulties that we face today. I can't imagine what was going through the followers of Jesus' hearts and minds of every person in the world, especially people living in Germany in World War II and the Holocaust. Imagine what they were thinking. But we know what was going on in the mind of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he, he, he talks about this moment in his life where, um, you know, you can read about this, where there were so many 
people in the German church that were disillusioned with many who were supporting the Nazi regime. And there was a lot of people in the church kind of getting swept away by that. They weren't listening to those unending words of Jesus. And so Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he started this small countercultural community in Finkenwald. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's where he was. And this community birthed a lot of the words that he famously wrote in the books Life Together, Cost of Discipleship, and those types of places. But there were, there were some friends of Diedrich who were concerned about the radicalness of this community. And he even had a friend one day come and visit him. And he said, I'm concerned that there's too much spiritualism going on in this alternative community that you got going on here, Diedrich. And so famously, this is recorded in history, where Bonhoeffer took his friend Wilhelm on this rowing trip up this river. And they go up on this hillside, kind of like a Mount Olivet. They're looking at some vistas. That's what Bonhoeffer wants to show him. And they get up there and he, he, he says, I want you to look over here at this vista. And off on this vista, you could see this field, he says, with runaways of nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like ants. And he spoke about this generation of Germans that were in training at that site to fight in the war. He said, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. So he says, look at that. And then from that same mount, you could see his little community in Finkenwald. And he says, this needs to be stronger than that. This needs to be stronger than that. And his friend had his answer. And the same is true for us, right? Our listening to Jesus needs to be stronger than our listening to other inputs that are leading you astray. Our alert praying, sober praying, needs to be stronger than our desires just to numb ourselves and not feel. Our picturing standing before Jesus needs to be stronger than our standing before others and the circumstances that are difficult. Guys, the world is watching us. Many are fainting with fear and numbing themselves, foreboding about what's happening in the world, being swept away by the next seemingly smart idea. There are headlines of fear and outrage that are controlling us. But Jesus tonight takes you up on Mount Olivet and points out these vistas. And he's not just saying this needs to be stronger than that. He's saying this is stronger than that. I have overcome the world. He doesn't say to you, good luck. He says the headline is, take heart, I have overcome the world. The headline is, I'm still building my church. The headline from heaven is saying, I'm coming back. The headline from heaven says, I'm bringing in the kingdom, not of hardness and cruelty, but of truth and grace. The headline from heaven says Jesus died and he raised his head from death and he straightened up and he walked out of the tomb and he says let's live like we believe that let's live like we believe that let's all stand to our feet I'm going to pray for us and we're going to go into our time of responding uh, to God's word through taking communion. Father, we 
come to you and we thank you for the victory of Jesus on our behalf that you've broken into this world and that our redemption draws near. And I pray tonight, God, that as we even take this communion meal that we remember our redemption purchased at the cross, that it would whet our appetites to live differently in this world in light of your gospel. Lord, that it would cause us to long once again for the day when our redemption will be brought into fullness. Amen. Mm-hmm.